The Jericho Network on Westwood One. The following program is presented by the Jericho Network in association with Podcast One. Podcast One presents Rock Talk, Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. All the rockers, all the stories. This is incredible. Now, now, here's your host, respected rock journalist, Mitch LaFawn. Welcome back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. I am, of course, your host, Mitch LaFawn. Uh, so much great, great content for you today. Interview with uh, John Karabi. It was absolutely fantastic. One of the best interviews I think I've ever done. He starts talking about his family, his dad, and all that stuff. And it really is sort of the true meaning of of, of rock and roll and, and just what life is all about, you know. All this fame and the glory and the money and the stages and... Yeah, okay. It's good. It's fun. But, but when your dad uh, has that heart-to-heart with you and when your kids... You know, and, um, you know, John talks about all that stuff, and it's absolutely wonderful. Um, I've also got Bill Leverty of Firehouse with your rock news. And, and before we get to Bill, I've, I've got a, a few rock news items that I want to get to. Um, you know, as we approach the summer, you know, June is coming up. Rock shows are starting. We've got Metallica that is, that is on the road and sounding wonderful. You know, kick ASS as they always do. Tonight, in fact, uh, May 22nd, 2017, I will be at the Brass Monkey in Ottawa for Little Caesar and Junkyard. Uh, two names way out of the past, but, but you know, that first Junkyard album was, was glorious, absolutely wonderful. And Little Caesar, I mean, come on. I mean, what a band. That is dirty American rock and roll, the way dirty American rock and roll is meant to be so... Um, looking forward to that tonight. So, so catch the next episode next week when I tell you how great it was. Because um, it's going to be great. There, there's no doubt about it. It's going to, uh, to be great. And if you didn't think, or if you think John Karabi and Bill Leverty and summer tours and all that was enough, uh-uh, uh no, no, no. Part two, I have got Steve Brown of Trickster. He's got a new band uh, with Ted Poley of Danger Danger called... Tokyo Motor Fist. Uh, the album came out um, probably in March, uh, I think. It's absolutely stunning. I, I mean, it is just melodic rock heaven. It is. It, it, you, you, you have to buy it. That's it. You just have to buy it. If you like, you know, you like your Def Leppards and your Bon Jovis and your White Snakes and all that stuff, uh, this band is right in there and uh, definitely worth picking up. So Tokyo Motor Fist. And, he, of course, he talks about uh, Trickster touring with Kiss on the Revenge Tour, uh, being over at Eddie Van Halen's house, um, being the stand-in guitarist for uh, Def Leppard and uh, all that other stuff. Anyway, we'll, we will get over to uh, John Karabi first, live and louder. But uh, just uh, before we get into this and to the rock news with Bill Leverty, I have to tell you, uh, David Coverdale of Whitesnake recently gave an interview in a Swedish magazine, and he said that he is sort of on this archaeological dig of the Whitesnake vaults for the uh, Slide It In, Slip of the Tongue, 87 album, uh, big anniversary remasters, and he's talking about uh, bonus tracks and uh, all kinds of stuff that the hardcore fan will, will be digging into. Uh, so... I recently just put together a 70-song Whitesnake playlist for the car, for the walk with the dog, and the whole thing. And 
to know that at the end of this year, or maybe in 2018, that there will be more new White Snake with more songs in demo form or unreleased or whatever, live. It's, it's like, really? It, it's, it's, it's Christmas in May, just knowing that. And I haven't even, these haven't even been put together. I haven't been able to buy them, and I probably won't get to buy them for a year, but it, it, it already is sort of like a, a pre-Christmas in May kind of moment. And then on the other side, um, you know, there, there are rumors out there. And uh, I'm not starting the rumors. I've heard the rumors. I have not uh, talked to anybody in in the band, and and the band I'm talking about here is Van Halen. I have not spoken to anybody in Van Halen. Nobody from the Van Halen camp has talked to me. No management, no nothing. But there is just these internet rumors circling that Van Halen next year is going to put together this big 40th anniversary tour. Can't confirm it. Have no first-hand knowledge. But again, the fact that these rumors are out there that Van Halen is planning some kind of big 40th anniversary bash that may include, that may include all three singers, Gary Sharon, Sammy Hagar, and David Lee Roth. Hey, don't know if it's true. Absolutely no way of confirming it. Nobody from the camp has spoken to me. I mean, I'll, I'll repeat that ad nauseum. But it's out there. It's on the internet. That is fantastic. Uh, if, if any of it, even, even if a modicum amount of it is true, you know, just the fact that Van Halen with David Lee Roth would go out and do another show, I'm in. I'm excited. And uh, if, if anything on, uh, on the wonderful internet is to be believed uh, about the Van Halen reunion and maybe remasters and repackaging and deluxe editions, I mean, holy mackerel. Holy mackerel, my, um, I'm breathless. I'm speechless just at the thought of it. Uh, my mouth is watering. So anyway, all kinds of great stuff to look forward to. If, you know, all this stuff pans out with Whitesnake, bonus. If all this stuff pans out with Van Halen, ha oh, bonus. And uh, speaking of bonuses, let's get right into Bill Leverty and your rock news. And on the other side of that, one of the most uh, goosebump eliciting, if that's a word, um, interviews I've ever done with uh, John Karabi of The Dead Daisies, and talking about everything. This live Motley Crue album that he's done from the 94 album, working with Mick Mars, uh, the time after he got fired from Van Halen and how despondent he might have been. There's a story way back in the day about him and a gun in his mouth and all that, so we talk about that. Uh, live and Louder, the new Dead Daisies live album, all that stuff, but here. Without further ado, let me give you, with your rock news, from Firehouse, guitarist extraordinaire, and good friend, the one, the only, Bill Leverty. Hey, thanks a lot, Mitch. And here's the news. Mr. Big is back. The band best known for the hit single, To Be With You, will release their new album, Defying Gravity, on July 7th via Frontiers Records. Bassist Billy Sheehan, guitarist Paul Gilbert, and singer Eric Martin... Welcome new drummer Matt Starr to the fold and reunite with producer Kevin Elson, who oversaw the band's first three albums. And Black Star Riders, featuring former Thin Lizzy guitarist, as well as Brother Kane frontman Damon Johnson, as well as Robbie Crane, who was formerly with Rat and Vince Neil, 
have announced that one-time Black Label Society drummer Chad Zaliga will take over for Jimmy DeGrasso, who left the band to join the reunited Rat featuring Stephen Piercy. Black Star Writers' new album Heavy Fire is out now. And last but not least, are you thirsty? Well, former Guns N' Roses and current 6AM guitarist DJ Ashbaugh has you covered. He's recently launched his own line of custom drinking water called, you guessed it, Ashbaugh Water. That's it for here. Back to you, Mitch. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. And a big thank you to Bill Leverty for the Rock News. And just before the Rock News, I believe I said that uh, John Karabi was fired from Van Halen. I was I was all caught up in my Van Halen speech, and I think my uh, brain sort of cross-pollinated there. Of course, John was in Motley Crue, but uh, let's ponder that for a second. Imagine if he had been in Van Halen, how awesome that would have been. Uh, anyway, we always we, we, we make errors once in a while, and, and then we have to correct them. But uh, thank you to Bill. Check out Leverty.com for all your Bill Leverty needs. And now, let us check out from the Dead Daisies, and formerly of Motley Crue, not Van Halen, Motley Crue, the one, the only, singer extraordinaire, John Karabi. We are speaking with singer John Karabi. Of course, uh, John has been with many bands. John, you've done Rat, Union, Scream, and now, of course, the Dead Daisies. Um... Let's let's start there. Talk, talk to me about joining the Dead Daisies. What? Um, I don't want to say what compelled you to join the band, but how has it been since you've joined the band? Well, to be honest, with you, it's been uh, it's been quite a whirlwind. Right. Um, I mean, if you think I've been with the band for two and a half years, and um, we've done two studio albums, we have a live record coming out. We're getting ready to do our third. Uh, studio album on top of all the touring and stuff that we've done, which is, it's pretty constant, but, um, it's amazing, man. It's like, you know, it's, I'm kind of blessed to be able to stand in front of, uh, you know, Marco Mendoza, Brian Tishy, Doug Aldridge, David Lowy, and just do my thing. You know what I mean? So, uh, it's been pretty awesome, but I've been with them since, um, probably, 2014. January 2015, right. I think. Yeah. yeah, it's been it's been a while now. Uh, coming into the band, were you afforded sort of the freedom to be John and to write and sing your way, or did you know David say, "Hey, uh, we've got this sound we're trying to develop. We just want you to fit in the mold." No, to be honest with you, they had um, when I like uh, you know if you've gone back and you've checked out the history of the band, you know that they had another singer prior to me being in the band, um, a great singer actually named John Stephen, um, and um, they had a couple of songs that they had written with John. They had started working on, um, and for whatever reasons, John like um, he was having some help issues and and you know he's also got a solo career so i I think there was like some booking conflicts whatever um they initially just asked me to go to cuba with them to do um the shows down there that they had lined up um i went down i did that and i think that might have been to be honest with you a little bit of an audition thing they wanted to see what i was about what i was like to work with you know yada 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 but um, 
I went down, I did that. And, and on my way home, I got a call from the management and he said, Hey, do you want to come to Australia in a month and, and do an album? Um, when I got into the room, they already had three or four songs finished. And then, um, they just said, well, let's get together and let's do some writing and, um, see what we can come up with. And we pretty much, we, we were down there for a month. We wrote another 13, 14 songs. Um, but we wrote, recorded, mixed, mastered 17 tunes. And it was just, um, you know, I had, I definitely had a lot of input. Um, they were definitely open to my ideas and, and open to me just being who I was. Um, and I, it was awesome. Yeah, and and you know the the last two albums have turned out great, and of course John, uh, for folks that don't know, sang a little bit for for In Excess in the early two thousands. Um, yes, Cuba. Since you mentioned it, I, I didn't have that down as a question, but since you mentioned Cuba, what was that experience like? Because you know, as a Canadian, we are allowed to travel to Cuba, and I've been twice in my life. I, I'm not a big fan of the country. I don't particularly like it but what was it like as a band and to sort of represent in a sense america when you're down there right it was pretty awesome um yeah. you know and i i have a different opinion and and that's fine you know yeah. I, I totally had a blast down there i thought the people now i i'm sure i was very um guarded you know what i mean but the people that i met and the people that i ran into um pretty much on a daily basis and were just nothing but um, outgoing and hospitable. And, you know, the thing that amazed me is, um, you know, the music. We went to a music school, um, like an, a little institute, where these kids were going and learning to play music. And it's just crazy to me, like, the, the amount of talent that was on that island, you know, whether you like blues or jazz or salsa or just whatever, there was so much talent there. Um, couple singers. We, we actually, when we played the show, we invited um, a bunch of the local musicians, a bunch of different ones to come up. Um, I had some come up and sing with us. Um, we had a percussion, uh, two people play percussion with us on a couple of tunes um, we had a guy that was playing, uh, I think saxophone, um, harmonica, like it was crazy. We had all, all these different players come up and sit in with us and we had a great time. The food was amazing. The people were amazing. Um, the one thing you have to agree with me on is the cost of living down there was like, it was so cheap down there, like, yeah. you know, food and cocktails, you know, like I just remember sitting at. Um, we were staying at what would be considered like a five-star hotel down there and Dizzy Reed, myself and, uh, Brian Tishy sat down and we all ordered some food and we all ordered like, uh, two rounds of drink. And I think the bill was like $14 and I'm like, this wow. is insane. You know what I mean? It was so it, it, I, yeah. I just, I, it, it was very eye-opening for me. Um, and then obviously I'm a huge history buff. So going through all of that part too, and, you know, we, we at the end, at the very end, we got to meet Raul Castro's sons. Um, and 
um, what's his name? Uh, Shea Guevara's son was at our show. So it was, it was pretty cool, man. You know, just from a, his, a history thing, it was awesome. Yeah, and, and, and let me just qualify what I, uh, what I meant. Uh, it's not that I don't like uh, the Cuban people or the Cuban... Uh, when I go on vacation, I like to do stuff. I'm more of a Vegas sort of Los Angeles. I need to be busy. Just sitting on a beach, it just drives me crazy. So it's not um, it's not Cuba that I don't like. I guess it's it's just that vacation of just sitting on a it's beach. It's the atmosphere, like the whole laid yeah. back beach atmosphere. Yeah, I, I, I can't do the, that. But see, I'm the opposite. Exactly. Man. Like I'm I'm yeah. like when I get done, when I like I I have all my insanity when I'm on the road. When I get home and I'm with my wife, like one of the reasons why I just told you I bought a tour bus, I bought it for touring with my solo band, but I also bought it for my wife and I to, you know, when, oh, you get out of work on Friday at six o'clock. Okay, honey, I'll pick you up. We get on the bus and we just go to Gulf Shores, Alabama or Destin, Florida, or go to a campground in Kentucky and just hang out and chill yeah. and grill out and just sit there and watch TV, yeah, you, see? <laughs> you know, and just chill. I'm, I'm about, I'm all about that. So yeah. You see, and, and I, I, I kind of dug Cuba. Yeah. And, and, and my entire sort of existence is sort of chilling. Cause I live basically in a forest that there's, there's in a village of 700 people. So I've got nothing to do all year long. So when I, when I vacation, I'm looking for something, you know, so you're, you're, you're very stimulated by shiny things. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, listen, today I took the dog out and, and the big exciting thing was that there was a dead raccoon on the street and, and he barked at it and it was like, all right. Yeah. You know, and so, so yeah. that'll be on the front page news later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. So I need, I need stuff. So I, I don't want to make it any, make it sound like it's anything against the country or political or it's just, it's just not my idea yeah, of a no vacation. Um, let, let's move on to this, uh, the live album, because that's why we're talking today. Uh, of course, live and louder. Um, from what I understand and, 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 and have heard the album, it, it sounds great. But this is sort of one take, and and it's 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 live as live can be. There's no overdubs and fixes. It's this is it kind of. No, thing, there's right? well, there's no fixes. It wasn't one take though. I mean, okay. we recorded probably five or six shows in okay. Europe, and then Doug went through. Um, Doug kind of went through all of the all of the shows, and he's like, "Well, this version of Moses is better than the other four, and then this version of." So it is like when you're listening to the record, it's not like it's not one show from top to bottom. It's just a couple different shows. But Doug went through and, and he listened to, um, you know, make sure that I was, you know, didn't have an off night or Brian didn't have an off night or whatever. But there is no overdubs. Like, so we just basically put the songs together like this version, that version, this version in the order that we played them. And then we handed the files over to Anthony Fox, who is a genius behind a board. I agree. And, um, he basically, you know, he did his thing and, um, I'm, I, like, I've heard, I've heard the whole record now and I'm like, wow, oh my God, it sounds awesome. It really sounds good. Um, yeah, Anthony does. So great it's, work. you know, I'm not going to lie to you. It's not like a, it's not like a one show, boom, warts, you know, the whole, it, like we recorded it over, 
Um, we did, I think we recorded one show in London. Um, we did a couple in Germany, I think Austria or Vienna or, I don't know. There was like, there was like probably four or five shows. And then, um, that's what Doug had to work with and that's what Anthony had to work with. And I think they did a great job. Yeah, they, they, they really did. And, uh, um, my, uh, the one thing I've always remembered about Anthony is that he's the sort of drummer in the dark in the Alice Cooper poison video, which, <laughs> which yes. is his early claim, his early claim to fame. Um, speaking of live albums, you recorded a, um, 1994 Motley Crue album in Tennessee um, a few yeah. years back in, I guess, 2014, 15, 2015, maybe? Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's called 94 Live, right. One Night in Nashville. Right. Now that, on the other hand, is one show, one take, no overdubs, no, we just went for it. And, uh, you know, there's a couple spots on it I wish I could have back. But for the most part, I, I just kind of I'm I'm a huge fan of Aerosmith live bootleg. Um, yeah, that's one of the greatest. Say what? Say that, that that's, again? that's one of the greatest live albums out there. I, I just that album, you know, sick as yeah, a dog. I mean, it's, it's just it is what it is. They don't make any bones about it. You know, they stretch things a little longer. They, you know, and there's there's a couple things in there that are just they just recorded and, and put it out there. And, and that's what I kind of want. I kind of what I was going for with my Motley 94 thing. Um, that I was supposed to put it out last year. Um, it was going to be on Rat Pack again. It still is. But when Joe, uh, Joe O'Brien, the owner, he was like, all right, let's put it out here and this time. And then, and then the daisies, I'm kind of struggling with myself. You know what I mean? It's like, I, I wanted to put that record out. And then the daisies were, was going to drop the record like in the same week. So I said, hold off on the Motley thing. And then I was going to put it out this year. And then the daisies unbeknownst to me, like oh, and until we went on the road, I didn't realize that we were recording some of the shows for a live album. So I said, well, when are we, when are we putting out, you know, the daisies record? And they said, May 19th. And I said, all right, cool. So I'm going to wait till like July or August and then just kind of sneak mine in and, uh, you know, throw it out there. And I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm actually trying to get into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but not for being in Motley Crue or any of the other bands. I just want to be the only solo artist, the only artist on, on earth that put out two live records on the same year with two separate, separate acts. I figure that's worth something. Yeah, that, that that now um that that 94 live tour that that Motley Crew that you that you did and we're talking about the one here in 2014 2015 is that something that you want to do again and and how was that experience for you getting to do those songs in full um you know I was planning on seeing you in Ottawa at the Brass Monkey but every time you come to Ottawa you bring extreme weather with you and you make it impossible <laughs> people to come out and oh, see dude. Your, your snowstorm karabi yeah i know i missed it i was just up there like in march a month and a half ago yep. which is also one of the reasons why i bought this freaking tour bus because i did it i went out and I, a couple of years ago i bought a conversion van for you know when i do my solo shows i had my guys in there and a flat screen tv and they could watch blu-ray movies and everybody was just 
you know, cool and calm. And, and I just went up and I did that. And my son came with me to do the acoustic shows. And we left Nashville and it said it was only like a 15 hour drive to Ottawa. And it literally, I drove right into that blizzard that they had in Buffalo, Ottawa, like all in that area, drove right into that blizzard. And it took me almost 40 hours to do a 14 or 15 hour drive. And I was like, I was, I came home, I go, I'm selling the van, I'm buying a tour bus. My wife was all about it. Like, okay, cool. If you can afford it, you know, knock yourself out. So I, I went out, I'm, I'm literally just picked it up like four days ago and I'm driving it home. So, yeah, well, it, it's just amazing. Cause I actually was going to drive out from, you know, Montreal to see the 94 show and it was whatever it was, freezing rain, snowstorm, whatever it was, couldn't make it. I was going to go see your acoustic show last month and I thought for sure he's going to cancel and I was buried in over 50 centimeters of snow and I couldn't get out of the driveway. And yet you made it. And so, uh, so next time, please uh, c- come up here like July 10th. Just well, I guess <laughs> you feel like a little bit of a vagina right now, don't you? Yeah, I do. But I, I literally couldn't move. Now, again, because we're, we're sort of off in the wilderness, I'm not actually in downtown Montreal. There was no snow removal. There was no, the, that, the one truck the city had didn't bother coming through. And it was just like, yeah. but yeah, I was like, how did he manage that? But, um, but is that something it, that, that... Very that, carefully, my friend, very uh, carefully. Trust me, I think the last 400 miles I drove, I didn't go over 30 miles an hour. It was it took me forever to get there. So unbelievable. But I made it. Um, and, but- and you know what the crazy part was is I got there to talk to her, and I said, "Hey, I'm here. I get it. If you want to cancel, I totally understand. I doubt you know because it was still snowing when oh, yeah. I got there. Oh yeah. And he's like, "No, no, no. I think we're going to be okay. I think we're going to be okay." And I mean, I felt horrible, but he still had probably 90 people there. And I'm like, I felt bad. You know, I was apologizing at the end of the night. He's like, dude, it don't matter. He goes, I sold like 150 tickets. Just a bunch of, I sold the tickets. People just didn't come. So he goes, we're good. We're good. Yeah, that's, uh, so I'm like, all right. That sounds like uh, what Dion, the owner of that place, would say. That's a a Dion. Yeah, he was was very cool. He was very cool, understood. So we had a great time. It was awesome. Yeah, well, we got to do it again now. But the 94 tour, how was it for you to get on stage and do the, those songs and do that show in full? Because, you know, you didn't really get a chance with Motley. And when you toured with Motley, obviously you had to do Live Wire and you had to do the big hits. Um, so how was it just sort of really just run through that entire album? It was it was a lot of fun. It, it was very cool because, you know, we got, we got a pretty good... Um, response from it like as far as you know ticket sales and stuff like that and um people were just like you know afterwards coming up to me or my wife was out with me for a few shows helping me sell merch and and, um you know they were like oh my god dude i've waited like 20 years for this and i'm like well that's why i'm doing it you know what i mean like i i totally understand that motley never we didn't there's a lot of places in america we didn't play we never played in canada we never played in, uh, I think the closest to Canada we got was Gary and Lake. Um, right out in Buffalo. Yeah. We never played my hometown, New York. Uh, we didn't do the West coast. 
it was it was a very sad state of affairs for us at that point but um it was a lot of fun man but it was weird like it kind of it was rough man like you know it's it if i could liken it to you know going back and looking at a workout routine that you used to do when you were like 25 and just going and jumping in and going yeah i can do this i did it once i can do it now boom and you know, going out and singing stuff like Smoke the Sky again and uh, even Hooligans Holiday, like all these tunes, I'm sitting there going, what was I thinking when I was sitting there stepping up to the microphone and screaming the way I was, you know what I mean? It was, it was, it was pretty intense. So I had to kind of work my way. We rehearsed for a while and I had to kind of, I had to kind of beat my voice up a little bit to get out there. And, you know, so walking on stage each night, like it's the one drag about being a singer is you can do everything exactly the same. You can work out, you can not drink, you can not smoke cigarettes, you can, you know, walk on stage one night and be flawless and then do the exact same thing the next day and then walk on stage and sound like someone skinning a cat. So it was a little, it was a little nerve wracking as well you know what i mean like i did it i pulled it off um but it's it's funny like you know i would go and i would do shows playing music from all of the bands that i was in and people would come up to me and go i want to hear more motley then i went out and i did the motley 94 shows and people were coming up to me afterwards and going man that was great it was awesome i waited 20 years from that but why didn't you do any scream stuff or why didn't you do any union or why do you, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I just said, I know exactly guys, what you I mean. Go, you can't please anybody. That, that's, you know, every rock star you, knows you that. Can't. <laughs> and so I just told the guys, I go, here's what we're going to do. Um, you know, realizing too, one of the biggest issues was being able to go overseas now, like the dead daisies have kind of meet, like, you know, we've kind of elevated very quickly to the point where we can go pretty much wherever we want. The, you know, the amount of money that we get paid is it's very good. And so having a crew and having visas and having, we're having to pay for visas and all that stuff that goes into traveling internationally. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's relatively, like it's okay for the daisies you know what i mean but for me like i was sitting there going man i I really want to go to europe but all the promoters in europe were like well who's in the band and i i'm like nobody that you would know it's just a bunch of friends of mine they're great players they're great guys they're easy to get along with um nobody you would know and they were like well you know for us to make any money we're going to need a all-star band and i'm like i'm not going to do that I'm not going to do, I'm already in an all-star band called the dead daisies. I'm not going to put an all-star band together just to come over to Europe. I want to come to Europe with my son as my drummer, with the guys that have been here with me for four or five years. If you can't pick this, then you can't have this. It's not coming. You know what I mean? So, um, I just said, you know what I'm going to do for the fans? Um, you know, I'll, I'll just record a show and I'll do a DVD and a live album. And if I can't get it over to Europe or 
you know, you know, take it over to Europe or UK or Japan, then I'll just, I will put out this record and I'll put out the DVD and they can see it and hear it and experience it the way that it would have been live. And it's, it honestly, it sounds great. We did literally one show, no overdubs, just recorded it. We gave it to Michael Wagner. Michael Wagner did his thing to it and it sounds awesome. So yeah. I'm very pleased with that one too. Uh, I'm I'm very much looking forward to that. Now I have a couple of other uh, Motley questions, but I'll I'll save those for the end. Uh, Union um, with Bruce Kulick of Kiss. Musically, I think the two albums or or the albums, especially um, uh, what was it, Blue Room, uh, were great. Yes. But it was in the marketplace at the time where it's just rock wasn't going to sell. Def Leppard wasn't selling. Motley Crue wasn't selling. Nobody was going to sell. Is that something at some point you'd like to revisit and, and maybe, even if it's just to put an exclamation point or, or a period to it, because it, I think the market pushed it out, not the musicianship. Um, is that something you want? I mean, first of all, are you proud of the band? Is that something that you would, you'd even consider? Oh, totally. Okay. Uh, you know what? On, honestly, Mitch, like, I, I, I have no regrets about any of the, I mean, you know, the biggest thing is, when you put a band together and you get a record deal a la the scream, you know, you really kind of go into it. It's like a marriage, man. Like every chick that you marry, you're like, this is the one, this is the one. And you just hope that everything works out the way it's supposed to work out. Everything fall, you know, like you didn't get sold, you know, you didn't get sold a, you know, a bill of goods only to find out later that, you know, it was all wrong. You know what I mean? Um, so I'm very proud of every band that I've ever been in, every record I've ever done. And the one thing that I'm even more proud of is I think that if you take any one of them, and I'm not trying to blow smoke up my own ass because there was other people involved in it, but for some reason, I feel like every record I've ever done, including the Dead Daisy stuff, you know, but especially older stuff, the Union, Motley, and The Scream, you can take any of those records out right now, blow the dust off it, put it on, and it doesn't sound dated in any way. No, I, I'll agree with that. I mean, I, I actually heard the Union, um, the Live in the Galaxy one, not too long ago, and it just it just sounds great. It just sounds like a contemporary album. So yeah, I, I agree with you on that. And you know, so I'm very proud of it. And the thing of it is, is Union didn't split up. We never kind of said, okay, we're calling it a day. We just kind of, we, you know, we've been sidetracked for the last 20 years. 2018 will be 20 years. That, uh, is it 17 or 18? 18? Well, the, uh, let's see here. Uh, Blue Room is released uh, February 22nd, 2000. So you're, you're on 17 going on to 18 years. So, well, but and, the first record, the oh, debut record, right. came out in 1998. Correct, correct, correct. 1998, yep. So, you know, we're talking 20 years ago. Um, you know, we just took a, honestly, we took a hiatus. I loved being in that band. I thought Brent was a monster drummer. Oh, that I, I Jamie, agree. Jamie, um, you know, even my bass player in my solo band, Topher, he listens to this stuff and he's like, Dude, of all of the records you've ever done, that bass player in Union is, he's a fucking beast. 
a beast, like on base, like that guy hits the right notes right where they belong. And just the way he gets to them and the little runs he does, it's just insane. And I love those guys. Like I, there, you can't touch Bruce Kulik on guitar as far as creativity. I think he's a totally underrated. Yeah. And, but it was just a point where, um, you know, on our Blue Room tour, we had built up the audience to the point where we were playing places like, uh, you know, Birch Hill in North Jersey, you know, 1,500, 2,000 seats. And we were selling them out. We were playing Pops in St. Louis, and we were selling it out. But it wasn't translating to record sales. And if you remember back then, that's where you made your money. You didn't make your money on touring. You made your money on record sales. And it's just, you know, Bruce got offered the Grand Funk gig, and he had to take that gig. Um, I got offered the Rat gig. Yep. I had to take that gig. If we wanted to continue playing music and doing what we love to do, we had to take the gigs. We and then, as it turned out, Brent and Jamie wound up getting the Vince Neil gigs. So we all we all did other things. We've all continued to do other things. Obviously, if you follow Brent's career, he was with Vince. Wow. And then um, Slash and uh, well, Theory of a Dead Slash. Man. Well, he, he, he did Theory, Theory of a Dead of Man, Man, Alice Cooper, Econoline Crush. Um, yeah, get the uh, Guess Who. Uh, now he's out with Whitford St. Holmes. Yep. You know, obviously the talent is there. Same with Jamie. Jamie just finished uh, doing a ton of shows with Roger Daltrey. Bruce is still doing Grand Funk, and you know I've gone on to do uh, you know my solo career. Uh, you know, the dead daisies. So it's a great band. And we have talked about, um, you know, maybe we should do a record or maybe we should do something. And I'm, and you know, my thing is with all of our schedules being the way that they are, I'm like, let's just, let's just go slow. See what the deal is. When there's some downtime, let's all just get together, rehearse the set and maybe go out on a two or three week run. And let's see what kind of reaction we get from people before we go throwing a bunch of money into a pot and doing a record and having nobody. Really but, you care. know, you know what I mean? But these days with with record labels like Frontiers out in Italy, they could probably help or, or the cruises. You know, the, I think Union would be perfect for one of the cruises because that would be one of those exceptional bands for this exceptional sort. Anyway, it, it would be. Well, it's it's funny because. Um, I actually spoke to Larry Moran from the Monsters of Rock Cruise. Great guy. Um, about a possible, you know, if everybody's available, have Union get together and just do like one reunion show, just to see. You know what I mean? Yep. But um, Larry was actually our tour manager for the Blue Room tour. Wow. So, um, you know, but it, it's you know, it's just it, it's so hard, you know, trying to make a living and and you know, uh, whatever, but we, we did it. We figured it out. It's all good. Um, everybody's, everybody's done well for themselves. So we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll see. I don't know. I would love to do maybe a tour, you know, and see how it goes. Yeah. Uh, listen, I, I, I'm, I'm all in. I think it would be fantastic. And I really think fans would like it. I, I really believe that it was the right band at the wrong time. And right now it seems to be the right time just for rock music in general, 
and I think it, I think fans would really dig it. Um, how, how much more time do you have? Because I have a, I have a million questions, and I could probably. You're good. You're fine. Okay. You're fine. So, um, uh, Mick Mars of Motley Crue, you you did some writing with him last year. Uh, he has been talking about a solo album for for a bit now. Uh, what was that like getting that call and what was it like sort of rekindling that partnership, uh, you know, friendship aside, a partnership of, of getting in the studio and creating uh, new art, new music? Well, you know, to be honest with you, like Mick and I got together. Uh, it was funny. I, I just got this email. I was at home and I got this email and it said Mick Mars. And I'm like, what? I clicked it. And, you know, Mick was like, hey, Crab, it's, it's Mick. I live in, you know, Nashville. And I'm like, what? You know, so he gave me his number and asked me to give him a call. And, you know, I, I hadn't really talked with Mick since I was in the band. So there were some things that we had to clear up. We were literally on the phone for like three hours. You know, he was like, well, I thought, you know, you did this because of that. And I'm like, no, 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 no. This is, you know, so I cleared some things up with him. He cleared some things up with me. And we talked for a while and he said, you know, I really love that record that we did, and I'd love to do an album. And, you know, we talked about it, and I went down and I saw him. We didn't even really play music. We just talked. We're like, hey, I had a cup of coffee. You know, he was sitting there. I went to his new place. And, you know, so we were just kind of hanging out. And then he's like, well, I really want to get going. You know, I got this final tour to do with Motley. And, um, and I said, yeah, I'm, I'm doing some stuff. I'm actually doing the Motley 94 shows, yada, 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 whatever. Long story, even longer. Um, I went out and I did my thing. He went on tour with Motley. And then it was weird. I kind of, I, I didn't hear from him for a while. And at this point, I had been out and I got the call to do the daisies. So I went and I, you know, obviously I did the daisy thing. And I hadn't heard from Mick at this point for like three or four months. So Jeremy and my solo band goes, hey, dude, um, yeah, I heard some of Mick's new stuff. And I go, what are you talking about? You know, like, I didn't know what he was talking about. He goes, yeah, Mick was in the studio with a different singer and um, a guy named Tommy Hendrickson from the Alice Cooper band. Yeah. And I go, oh, sorry. Okay. And I, I wasn't. I didn't feel slighted or anything. I'm like, okay, well, Mick obviously went on tour with Alice Cooper and, you know, I introduced him to Chuck Garrett, but I said, you know, he probably whatever and just kind of went in a different direction. So we go on tour, the Dead Daisies, Motley's still on tour. We wound up at the Download Festival on the same day. Um, and I don't know if you know Bobby, Mick's guitar tech. Yep. Um, Bobby comes up to me and he goes, crab, what are you doing, buddy? And I'm, I'm like, Hey, what's going on? And I said, how's, how's Mick? You know, we're, we're just, you know, bullshitting. And I said, oh, I'm really happy that Mick, you know, he's got his thing going. He's got his band together. He's like, no, 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 no. And I'm like, well, hold on. I said, you know, my guitar player said that he heard some of the material of Michael Wagner's and, and he's like, no, you don't understand. He goes, I'll have Mick get a hold of you. He still wants to do something. With you. And I said, okay. Well, just let me know, whatever. And then literally, I didn't hear from anybody. That was probably June, July. I didn't hear from anybody. And then I got home uh, for Christmas. And then um, probably around 
end of December, maybe beginning of January, Mick called me. And he goes, Crab, I need you to sing a couple of tunes. And I said, okay. You know, so I, I went, in, he was already in a studio. He had already laid a bunch of tracks down. And I went into the studio and I heard the songs. And there was one song, like, um, I liked a, a majority of it. So I just rewrote some lyrics for a couple little spots. And then the other song didn't really have any lyrics at all. So I just kind of kept the theme that they had going. And I, I rewrote lyrics for it. And I went in and I sang them. And, um, you know, so at that point, like Mick was like, well, I, you know, I want to sit down. I want to do all new record. And like initially he just, when we talked, I thought he just wanted me to help him write some stuff. And then he said, no, I want you to sing. You know, I thought I was going to sing a few songs. I thought Glenn Hughes would sing a couple of tunes, you know, whatever. But the mix started talking to me about actually writing and recording the whole record with him, which I was still fine with. Problem of it was, is I sat, I had to sit down and I had to look at it in the grand scheme of things. Me doing mix record would have required me sitting with Mick for a few months and taking some of his ideas, um, and song ideas and writing melodies or writing lyrics to them or, you know, working on new ideas together. That would have taken a couple of months to get some stuff together and then, uh, and go record. And then he wanted me to tour and I know he wants to get out and do his thing, but I was just sitting there you know, looking at it. And I'm like, okay, Mick wants me to help him with this, but I've got a new Daisy's record. We were supposed to start recording, make some noise last year. And I'm like, I've got that. I've got this live record that I've done with my solo band and I have to do contractually. I have another studio solo record to do. Now I did the make some noise. Now we did a live record the daisies and now we're going in back into the studio at the end of this year and i'm i was just sitting there going you know not not to be weird but i'm going i don't know when i'm gonna have time to do this so i just sat and i talked to mick and i go dude like i i you know and he was getting antsy he he started getting antsy like crap i can't you know i'm not mad i'm not mad or anything but i, I don't want to sit around i can't sit around and wait and i said i totally understand and i don't want you to and like, I don't, plus I also don't want to do something with you unless I can give it 100% of my time. And right now between my solo career and the dead daisies, I'm beyond scattered. Do you know what I mean? Oh, so yeah, I can imagine in, in all fairness. I just, I wanted to be able to give him a great solo album. You know what I mean? And I just don't know if I could do it right now. But it's still, you, you, you had a chance to reconnect with him after 20 some years and that that's certainly got to be a positive to, to take away. You know what? I, uh, yes, I love Mick to death. Um, Mick to me is another truly underrated guitar player. He's, he's easily one of the funniest people I've ever met in my life. And contrary to the image that Motley had, Mick was probably one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet in your life. Like he would literally give you the shirt up back if he saw you needed one. And, and right. when I say that there's no exaggeration in that at all. Uh, <clears throat> and he's been kind of overlooked and kind of picked in the ass. Quite a few people, even people in his own camp 
And I just, I would love to be able to do something with them, but I just, I, if I do, it's just, I would be able to take a year of my life and just dedicate it to that. And I just, at this point, I can't, you, can't. you know what I mean? I can't do it. Not and uh, in all fairness to him, I think this is his first solo record. I think it's got to be amazing. I think it's got to rip people's faces off. And um, he's just got to be Mick Mars, man. And, and uh, you know, yep. so I'm really keeping my fingers crossed for him. Um, I heard he's been writing with a couple of people in Nashville. Um, you know, so I think it's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm keeping my fingers crossed. And I know he's going to do something that's just going to blow people away. So I'm excited about it. Yeah, I think it's going to be great. Now, um, I, I know you're sort of sitting on the side of a road at a truck stop, and I, I, I don't mean to get you all uh, depressed with this question, but back in 2012, you, on tour, on stage, uh, and, and you know, there's video of it on, on YouTube, you were telling us stories that when you were let go from Motley Crue, you got to a point where you got into your car and you put a gun to your to your throat, and, and there was no bullets. There was just it was just. Is that you know? You know what's funny, right? It, it, it's I know I knew you were going to ask me this question when you the way you set it up. Of course, the funny thing of it is, is if you've ever seen my acoustic show before, right? It's a little bit of a. Uh, well, that's what I was going to ask it's you. A little. Is it part it, vaudeville? It, is it part? I mean, is it or is it like a true true it story? Totally vaudeville. Okay. And I would, to be honest with you. It, it was hilarious because I was talking about, I was talking about, um, I forget what song I was, I think I was doing, I was getting ready to do a song called Robin song. And I used to tell the story about how Motley brought me in and they told me that they had to go. Correct. And I was sitting there, you know, in the suit, I, but I was trying to be funny. Right. I was trying to be funny. Okay. And I was sitting there saying like, Oh yeah, you know, who's going to pay for the car and, who's going to pay for the house that your ex-wife and your kids are in. And, Oh, but worst of all, who's going to pay for the model. And, right. you know, then, you know, and it was weird. I, like I told the audience, I said, it was one of the hardest years I had gone through. My mother had passed away. My son was diagnosed with diabetes. He was sick, you know, Motley let me go. And then the girl that I had been living with, you know, basically decided that her career was taking off in some space, you know, Right. And I said, and, and I said, you know, and I was, I made a joke. I, I think I said something like I thought I handled it pretty good. So I reached into the glove box and I pulled out a gun and I stuck it in my mouth, but I forgot that there wasn't any bullets in it. Right. And it was a joke. Okay. I moved on. And then I, blah, blah, blah. that story has gone viral. <laughs> totally. Robbie tried to kill, kill himself. And I'm like, no, you're missing the point. It was a joke. The funny thing of it is, is if you listen to the video, the audience is laughing. Oh, I've, I've watched it, and and that's why I, I asked the question because we've we've known each other at a distance for many years, and never through any conversation have I heard anything or you've seen anything where you were so dark and depressed that the whole I, I just haven't seen that. And so I watched the video and I watched the story, and I go, and I didn't mean to sound you know insulting, but I was like, that that's more vaudeville. That's just a good storyteller. I mean, when you're doing a show. 
that's a show, right? Just like Alice yeah, Cooper. Yeah, and I even I right? even did a thing. I even did a thing with, with my thing, my two fingers and my thumb, where I took my, you know, right, whatever. Just my luck, you know. I took the I took the gun out of the thing and I stuck it in my mouth and I forgot I didn't have any bullets. Right. You know, and it was like. Boom! The audience okay. laughed, and I just I kept going the story, you know. But it it was it was weird. I was trying to, cause it was funny. Here here's what like when I was initially telling everybody right the story, I was telling them that year was a very hard year for me. Like to go from Motley, uh, you sure. know, lose my mother. My son was very very sick, right. and then to come home and you know, and then you know. The girl, but right. it wasn't just that. I I used to tell everybody like you you really kind of realize that um you realize like like with a gig like Motley like everything was gone my guitar endorsements I was with Gibson forever and it was like once I lost the gig it was like I I might as well have just had leprosy yeah. like I never my phone stopped ringing it was a very odd year. But it was it was weird. Like, and to be honest with you, was I a little? I I, I don't want to say I was depressed. No, but it wasn't exactly was, a sunny day in Philadelphia. I mean, you know, it was, it was exactly. And I was trying to figure out like, where do I go from here? Like, what am I going to do? Like, how am I going to pay for all this stuff that I accumulated while I was in my? Life? And it wasn't it wasn't um, frivolous things. It was you know I was married with two kids. They went to a good school and I had a decent house, not a mansion, but just like, you know, in a nice neighborhood, a decent house. And my wife had a car now, which she didn't have before. And I had a decent car. And then there's car insurances and health insurances and light, you know what I mean? And how am I going to pay for all this? And so it was a bit of a trying time for me. But the one thing in that was it was it was crazy my kid was my son kind of put it all into perspective for me it was shortly afterwards it was christmas um it was just like all these kind of little positive things were happening to make me realize that everything would be okay and it was funny i had a giant pickle jar so for like two or three years when i would come home you know from the studio with the guys i would just take whatever was in my pocket like a you know, maybe $2 bills and some change. And I would just throw it in the pickle jar, close it up. Well, at Christmas, I was kind of panicked. I'm like, well, I don't really have that much money in the bank. You know, like I got, I want to get my kids something for Christmas. So I took the pickle jar. It was so weird. It was about three quarters full. And I just sat there and I go, well, I'll do, I'll just cash this change in and I'll just get my kids a couple little gift cards or something, you know, for Christmas and we'll call it a day. And I took it to one of those coin places. I took all the bills out, put them in my pocket, and I took all the change out and I dumped it, thinking that I would have maybe a couple, a hundred bucks. Right. And the coin counter was counting and I'm dumping and I dump more, more. And it's like 100, 200, 500, 1,000, 1,500, 1,800. 2000 and i'm like it's just i'm like holy christ like what's this is amazing so i like took all the chains i had like almost three grand in this pickle jar (laughs) obviously from costco 
one now? I said, obviously, a pickle jar from Costco. I mean, it was something a gigantic yeah, jar. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. <laughs> yes, and then and then I had the bills in my pocket, so I had like thirty two hundred bucks. You know what? It was like this weight was lifted. I went. I got my kids something. My ex wife Valerie called me up and said, "Why don't you come up for dinner? Hang out with the kids." I said, "All right." And I was literally sitting there. I bought my daughter some stuff. I bought my son some stuff. I got my ex-wife a bottle of wine for inviting me for dinner. And um, I went up. She went out. She was out, uh, you know, went out with her friends after work, after dinner. And I sat there with my kid, Ian, who you've met before. Yep. Uh, I believe you have anyway. Yep. And, but he was like five or six years old, seven years old. And uh, we were just sitting there. I put some Disney movie on, and he asked me if I'd stay and watch the movie with him. I said, yeah, sure. So we're just sitting there, and we're hanging out on the couch, and he he put a pillow, like, on my lap, and he was just laying across the couch. And just he just goes, hey, Dad. And I'm like, "What? what's up, buddy? And he goes, thanks for coming and hanging out with us on Christmas. That gives me chills, and by I, the way. But I just sat there, and I went, what am, what am I freaking out about, like, Seriously, like I have a great relationship with my ex-wife. My two kids adore me. And my kid is thanking me for doing something simple, like coming and having dinner with him and watching a movie on Christmas. Best Christmas ever. Best life lesson ever. It didn't, I didn't, at that point, and I don't mean this to sound weird, I didn't give a shit about Motley. I didn't give a shit about the girl. I didn't give a shit about the money. It was about that. You know what I mean? Yes. Well, I, I, absolutely. Listen, I, I'm a father of two. That that's that sums it all up. You know, um, it's it's. I don't need a lot of friends. I just need a few good ones. Yep. And I've got my family. Um, <clears throat> you know, it just for m- me and my son and my daughter. Um, even my ex-wife, my ex-wife still, my son now lives in Nashville with me. My ex-wife comes out to Nashville from Hollywood, um, you know, on Christmases and stuff to hang out. And she comes and stays with me and my new wife, Debbie. You know what I mean? We all get along great. Um, we've been on, we've all been on cruises together on the Monsters of Rock cruises. I'm like, my life does not suck. No, it doesn't. It's pretty awesome. And it really kind of made me put things into perspective a little bit. You know what I mean? So it was it was it was a good thing. Well, it it put things into into perspective a lot a bit, not a not a little bit. And um you know, you you look back at your entire career and all that and you have to standing here in 2017 um from my perspective, at least, you're one of the luckiest son of a guns I, I've ever met. I mean, you know, the, the scream and the, I, the I rat. Just had the, this talk, yeah. I, I just had this talk with my my wife, like, you know, and, and there's another, if I detain you for another couple minutes. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I did have a moment. I did have a moment when I was about 50 years old. And my dad who just passed away in 2014. Um I, we, he called me, um, he's like, Hey, happy birthday, blah, blah, blah. And I was kind of, I was kind of in that thing again, where I was like, man, you know what? Like, he, cause he could tell right away something was wrong. He goes, what's up? And I go, you know, dad, I go, man, I've been doing this for a long time. And <clears throat> you know, 
I go, other than my car and my gear, like my home studio and the gear that I have, I go, I don't really have a lot to show for what I've done. Yep. And, you know, it, it was a gr- craziest thing. My dad and I did not get along well when I was a kid. The whole music thing, he didn't understand it at all. He wound up being probably my biggest fan. Like when he passed away, we literally found like a footlocker full of every magazine I think I've ever been in, every interview, every newspaper clipping, like he had it all. Um, but he sat and he talked with me and he goes, let me tell you a story. And he goes, when I was younger, he goes, I wanted to be an artist. Right. And he goes, I could paint. Because I wasn't great at it, but I, he goes, that was my thing. Like, I, I just wanted to be an artist. He goes, I got out of high school, and he goes, he went to Korea. And then got out of the Korean War, met my mom, got married. And then he was going to, you know, get a job, but he was going to be an artist. Well, then guess who came along? I come along. Right. And he said, at this point, like, I did what I thought I had to do. I put on a suit and a tie and I went and I juggled, I juggled numbers for people and I made a very good living. I, I, you know, I took care of my wife and my four or five kids and I did my thing. And I was like, okay. And he goes, now he goes, let's look at you. And I said, all right. He goes, you got married to Philadelphia to a girl that already had a daughter. You were 20. And he goes, but you kept doing the music thing, doing the music. He goes, and then you saved up money and you went to California with your family. And he goes, you kept doing the music. He goes, you had jobs, but you you kept doing the music. And he goes, honestly, dude, he goes, you've taken care of two ex-wives. You took care of your mother when she had cancer um, and hospice care, paid for everything. He goes, you've got, you've had two kids that you've totally taken care of. And he goes, you've taken care of yourself. And he goes, you've done it all doing what you love to do. So he goes, in all honesty, he goes, you're a bigger man than I'll ever be. And I just was like, okay. Yeah. Uh, Okay. That kind of puts a lot of stuff into, again, somebody in my family kicked me in the ass and said, dude, shut up. Like, what are you going to do? Whatever. So you, so what? You didn't buy a, you know, $600,000 home. Who cares? Right. Who cares? It doesn't matter. You know, you've done everything you've wanted to do and you've done it all by playing music. And then the fact of the matter is, is then I sat there and I went, wow, you know what? Like I'm, I look at a bunch of my friends that had record deals in the late eighties or early nineties and never got another one again. And I've had one with the screen mm-hmm. with Motley yep. with union as a solo artist and with the dead daisies. I'm like, okay, I need to just shut up and enjoy the fact that the sun is shining. Yeah, it, it really is. And I just, and I'll, I'll, we'll end on that. Cause I, I mean, after those stories, talking about rat and all that becomes completely irrelevant. Um, when you saw that, that, that locker with all that stuff, did, first of all, did you know that he had that? And second of all, 
that emotion when you see that he collected this stuff must have just been like, oh, oh my. I mean, that, that must have just, right? That must have been real heavy. It was, it was pretty, it was pretty intense. I mean, I can imagine, you know, I mean, just hearing um, the story, I, I literally got goosebumps. I'm not, not figuratively, literally got goosebumps. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it was funny, like realizing, and, and he never said a word. I mean, like I had no idea, but then later on, like my, my brother, I have brother Todd that my dad, mom and dad divorced and my dad remarried had another son so my brother Todd said oh yeah you know dad used to go you know food shopping and you know like he would just go right to the magazine section and just start looking through you know Metal Edge or Hip Raider or Cream or you know Rolling Stone whatever looking for anything John Karabi related and he would buy it and then you know he would go up to the counter and set it on the counter and go yeah that's my son you know da 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 never knew any of it and then uh wow yeah he just he saved everything that's why and i (laughs) didn't know it you know what i mean it was so it was awesome um you know but honestly i think one of the greatest things or the greatest moments was when i was kind of at 50 having a bit of a come apart about you know why i wasn't leaving some sort of you know crazy financial legacy you know and homes and why I felt like I wasn't smarter with my money. Um, but then my dad kind of, you know, he just kind of put it into perspective because you weren't afforded luxury. You took care of two wives, two kids, um, yourself and your mother was sick and she kind of got screwed on our, um, you know, American health system Correct. and, you know, insurance and pensions and all that stuff. So she died penniless but I just basically paid for her hospice care and her mortgage. And like, I just took care of her for two years. And my dad's like, dude, give me a friend. all of like playing a guitar. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like, stop bitching. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, okay. I got it. Yeah. I got it. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, also from, from my perspective, I, I think it shows as well. Um, just, musically and performance wise and interview wise and everything I've seen from you in the last, uh, you know, few years, there, it does seem to be a lot more positive and a lot more upbeat and, and, you know, dads will do that to you and, and, and kids will do that to you. They'll, they'll, they'll set you well, straight. And, it, and it's, it's just even the industry, you know what I mean? Like yep. someone was just asking me the other day, they heard a couple tracks from the live record. They're like, Oh dude, this is great. You know, the you know, man, this, you know, this could be the breakout, you know, like Kiss did their record and, you know, their first live record. And, and I'm like, you know, it could, I get, I get accused of being opti- too optimistic sometimes. And I get accused of being too pessimistic sometimes. And at the end of the day, if I can have an oxymoron here, I think I'm optimistically pessimistic. Right. Like I realize now that I can only, I can only argue or fight or battle with people about so much. You know what I mean? Like I realize now when I didn't realize when I was in the screen is that you as an individual or an artist cannot control every moving part in the machine. That is the music industry. You can't, if I can use the blue room as an example, Yep. you know, Spitfire set that record up. Honestly, 
they we had a bunch of press, a bunch of radio, and all this other stuff. Who knew? Who knew? Who forced? Who could foresee the fact that an advanced copy of our record went out to some radio station or some promo guy or some PR guy or publicist or whatever? You know, went out. They looked at it. They were like, ah, tossed it into a bin, and the whole record, three months before it came out or four months before it came out, was on Napster. You can't predict that stuff. So my thing is, I do the best that I can do. Like, I'm, you know, I'm getting ready to go on tour now. So next couple of weeks, I got I to gotta start jogging on the you know, um, I kind of, this last week, I've been a little bit lax, you know, but I got to get my thing together. I got to start getting my voice together and, and just getting into shape and my clothes. You know? And so I can only write the best that I can write, sing the best that I can sing on stage or in the, or in the studio. And I can do my best. And then once it's all said and done, I hand it over to a manager or to a record label and I go, okay. I did the best I can do. Now you and your team, you got to do the best you can do. And then at that point, I just kind of slap my hands and I can get mad about things, but yeah. I can't control that. Once I turn that record over, I can't control it. So at that point, it's in the hands of the universe. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, whatever, whatever you believe in, if that person wants this next record to be you know, sell one more copy than Michael Jackson's Thriller, it'll happen. If not, you move on to the next record. Yeah, yeah. That's, 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 that's sort of the great philosophy that I, that I deal with. It just, uh, you know, for me, I just try to be the best Mitch, Mitch can be, and, and what is, whatever it is, it is, and just keep moving, keep moving forward. Uh, John? Exactly. A great, great pleasure. I could go on forever and always. I do have an interview with Bobby Whitlock of Derek and the Dominoes coming up, so i got to get to that. But this has been absolutely uh, fantastic and uh, just, just great. And very much looking forward to the Dead Daisies coming up to Canada, the North American tour uh, that's coming up in August. Doesn't quite make it this far north, but uh, hopefully in September, October, or later on this year it will. Hopefully. Yeah. We're, we're fingers crossed. There you go. Thank that, you, sir. We can just... We can just hope that there's demand so that we can come back up there. So, oh, there, 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 there's got to be. And, uh, yeah, very much looking forward to the, the Dirty Dozen tour, the new Live and Louder, and pretty much anything you do, because uh, it's, it's, always, it's always top quality. It's always good stuff. The Unplugged record, which we didn't talk about at all. Um, I have the uh, version of Hooligan's Holiday in a playlist that I play almost daily. Um, it's just great stuff. Just great stuff. That's cool, buddy. Thank you. I appreciate it. And uh, we'll do this again soon. Hopefully. Yep. Cheers. All right, brother. Bye-bye now. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Rock Talk. Today on Geffen Playhouse Unscripted, we are joined by actor, producer, director, author. (laughs) What else can you do, Brian Cranston? I sweep floors. You do? And I load a dishwasher really, really well. 
Do you unload it? Not too many. Okay. <laughs> We could give you a job in our the house. The talent is loading it, not unloading. No, the talent is buying the dishes that fit together and not the dishes that I buy that don't fit in the dishwasher. Well, I could teach you how they can fit. Okay, Brian, right. thank you. That's Brian Cranston on Geffen Playhouse Unscripted. Be sure to listen on Podcast One or through the Podcast One app and Apple Podcasts. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. And a big thank you to John Karabi for that interview. Uh, absolutely stunning. Uh, great, great chat. Loved hearing the stories about his uh, family. Um, Live and Louder by the Dead Daisies is out now. So go and uh, purchase that. Make yourself happy. And his 94 Live One Night in Nashville, where he does the entire 1994 Motley Crue album. Uh, that should be out, as you heard. Uh, later this summer, so uh, good on that. So let's get over to our second interview. It is with guitarist Steve Brown of Trickster. He is in a new band, or a new sort of super group maybe perhaps, called Tokyo Motor Fist that also features Chuck Berge, who was in Rainbow Blue Oyster Cult, Joe Lynn Turner and more, Greg Smith, of course, Ted Nugent, Rainbow, Alice Cooper, and last but not least, one of the best singers in the business, Ted Poley from Danger, Danger. And I have to tell you, this uh, Tokyo Motor Fist album is absolutely fantastic. It came out a couple of months ago, and I have been playing it nonstop ever since. I just don't understand how, after all these years, Ted Poley's voice has gotten stronger, whereas a lot of his contemporaries, the voices seem to sometimes struggle. This guy just keeps getting better and better and better. And Steve, of course, his, his playing is always, always stellar. Uh, we talk about that, we talk about Trickster, and we talk about Def Leppard. And for some of you, you might say, well, why is Steve Brown uh, talking about Def Leppard? Well, uh, you know, over the last few years, uh, Vivian Campbell, their longtime guitarist, has had um, his health issues. And uh, Steve was out on the road with the band sort of as a stand-in if needed. Now, most of the shows did not need to have Steve come out there, but uh, there, was, uh, there was one or two where he had to come out and take over for Vivian because he was dealing with the, uh, the health uh, issues. And so um, Steve is still on speed dial with the band Def Leppard, and uh, you may or may not see him again at some point, but uh, for now... Um, you know, I wish nothing but, the, of course, the, the, the best of health to Vivian Campbell. And I saw Def Leppard in April at the Bell Center in Montreal with uh, Poison and Tesla. And what a package. I mean, those three bands. Tesla comes out and gives you honest, good old-fashioned rock and roll. Poison just delivers a set of, you know, the greatest hits you've heard on radio for the last 30 years. And then Def Leppard just comes out there like a monster and just sort of scoops up the other two bands and goes, oh yeah, well, we'll show you. And so you get just three bands that are just at the top of their game delivering um, really like almost four hours of hits, uh, true legitimate hits for every band. Anyhow, do yourself a favor and check out Tokyo Motor Fist with um, Ted Poley of Danger Danger and uh, Steve Brown of Trickster. And so without further ado, here is... The one, the only, guitarist extraordinaire, Steve Brown. We are speaking with guitarist Steve Brown of Trickster, and of course now Tokyo Motor Fist, and occasionally, sometimes, of Def Leppard. But that's, that's another story. We'll get to it later. Good day, Steve. Pleasure to speak with you. 
How you doing, Mitch? Great to be with everybody. Good, good, good. Doing really great. And, you know, the last Trickster album in 2005, Human Era, was probably, and I don't mean to disrespect your earlier catalog, but probably some of your best work. It was just absolutely a great, great album. And now you've gotten together with Ted Poley of Danger Danger, and you've made an album that's equally as good or maybe even better. Tokyo Motorfist is, is brilliant, so let's start there. Is it just an album? Is it a group? Is it a super group? Is it a touring entity? Is it just, here it is, and off we go. Explain. Well, I think it's, I think it's hopefully it's going to be all of the above, but right now uh, we're just celebrating the, the accolades of uh, you know, making a great CD, Tokyo Motor Fist, thanks to our friends at Frontiers Records for you know, Serafino put this together and, uh, you know, we couldn't be happier. And it, of course, it came out better than we all imagined. I mean, I, I knew, I mean, listen, I have the confidence. I've, I've made a few records in my day and I have the confidence to be able to make records. And, you know, like you said, the, the last two trickster records, Human Era, that came out in 2015 and New Audio Machine that came out in 2012 on Frontiers as well. Um, you know, some of the best work that I think I've ever done, you know, as a producer, writer, engineer, and, and then, you know, of course, to- Tokyo Motorfist now with, uh, you know, Ted Poley, my dear friend from Danger Danger, and, uh, Chuck Berge and Greg Smith, you know, an incredible rhythm section, and, you know, it's just, uh, you know, sometimes magic happens, and this was one of those, those, uh, you know, super, so-called supergroups that were, you know, kind of put together to make a record and uh it it worked magically and uh like i said yeah. you know, we all couldn't be happier and fans all around the world are loving it and it's actually selling you know we charted on the billboard charts we charted in 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 switzerland which was incredible and then a few other european countries so wow you know i'm impressed <laughs> well i'm actually impressed well uh, first of all i'm in i actually bought it i paid the money for it i was sent a a free link and all that and I just loved it so much. I said, no, I need, I need to own it. But it is important that we talk sort of about the European market. There still is a great demand in Sweden, in Germany, and in England for, for this kind of rock. How are you finding it back home in the North American market, or even specifically the U.S. market? Canada seems to do okay, but what's it like for you in the U.S. market in terms of rock? Well, I think, you know, in terms of rock, rock is always there. It has the fan base, um, you know, but I definitely think, you know, and especially seeing with the Tokyo Motor Fist, I think, and even with Trickster, you know, because, you know, over the last couple of years, Trickster has finally done their first international dates. You know, we did Italy, we did uh, we did South America, you know, we did, uh, uh, we did the UK, and uh, so... I think personally, this style of music, this melodic hard rock, is much bigger in Europe and Japan than it is here. Um, you know, and that's speaking. You know, I mean, I, I, I've always believed, and you know, I think we all, a lot of us, know the fans are. They don't get all the things that you know. I, I think in America that we're so we're spoiled here in the sense that we get all the biggest shows first, and we have everything is just right here. In European countries and around the world, they don't get everything like we do, like we do here in the states. So, the fan base is a lot more um, loyal. 
And, uh, you know, and, and, you know, and I see that, especially, you know, now that I'm playing, you know, I'm doing shows with Danger Danger as well. And I see their fan base and those guys, you know, though they did, they did okay here in the States, they still have a, a tremendous fan base in Europe and, and in Japan. You know, these guys, you know, for the last 20 years, you know, they headline festivals and they, you know, play, you know, I mean, Danger Danger played in front of 40,000 people last year at the Loud Park Festival in Japan. You know, so I, I totally see it as being a more, you know, like I said, loyal fan base. It really um, is. Europeans are, are diehards. I mean, they love their band, and it's for 40 years. A Scorpions fan in Germany has been a Scorpions fan since day one. Same with Iron Maiden. Same with, um, before we get to Trickster, though, and, and there's a lot of Trickster stuff to go on, how did the, Mo the Tokyo Motor Fifth album come together? Were these songs that you just had sitting around and said, ah, let's throw them on the wall and hope they stick? Or did you actually have a writing session and say, let's, let's you know? No, well, I mean, the, the, the project came together, you know, over, you know, I, I think most people know, but if they don't, you know, Ted and I grew up in, uh, you know, North Jersey, Bergen County. He's from Ramsey, New Jersey. I'm from Paramus. So we grew up on the scene together. You know, Ted's a little bit older than I, I was, but I was a big fan when he was in Profit years ago with my, uh, you know, my, my old brother and rest in peace, Dean Fasano, great singer. Um, and, uh, and so we were always, you know, when I was a little kid, I was, I love, I still have the first profit album with, with Ted on when Ted was playing drums, but when danger, danger started, you know, when that was when trickster was coming up on the scene. And so we were, we were, we were playing together, not playing gigs, but you know, he was working on the demos for danger, danger and trickster was working on their thing. So, you know, there's a serious history there along with Chuck Berge, you know, and Greg Smith, we all grew up on the scene together. So Frontiers came to me, Serafino said, hey man, you want to do a CD with Ted? And I said, sure. And, uh, and then so my first, you know, being the songwriter and producer and, you know, everything, jack of all trades that I do, I had to, you know, put together the songs. And so the first thing I did is, you know, like I, do with, like I did with the Trickster records, the last two Trickster records, I go to my vault, so to speak. You know, I have in, in my basement, I actually have a bank vault. You know that's filled with gold that is bars awesome. and, and and jewels and you know treasure chests. No, I'm totally kidding. But you know I love that saying. Every every songwriter, let's go to the vault. I know, I know. Whenever any it's artist, really, you know what, Mitch? Honestly, what it is, it's it's a hard drive in, in my, that's connected to my computer, that's connected to Pro Tools, and I have all these great songs. That's my vault. <laughs> it's a great so, vault. I go to the vault, which is like I said, the hard drive, and um. I put together, you know, like a playlist. I grabbed these MP3s of songs, and, and, and all of a sudden I had 11, 12, 13 songs that were unused. And what I, what I mean by unused is not to say that they were throwaways, because people always say that, oh, if a song didn't make a record, there's a reason for that. I never believe that. And, you know, I've been living in my house here with my family for, you know, 20, 24 years. First thing I ever did with my published Trickster Money back in the days, I built a recording studio. Smartest money I ever spent in my life. And so I, ne I never do demos. I make finished masters, which those masters over the years have become, you know, like the 40-foot Ringo record back in the day. And then, so with this, I had these 11 songs, 12 songs, phenomenal. And I sent them to Ted, Greg, and, uh, and Chuck. And I said, listen to this. 
And they were like, you know, they were like, this is amazing. We got it. And uh, so that was it. You know, we had these songs and yeah, they were, they were leftover. And like, you know, like I said, with some of the trickster songs, you know, that, that we've used over the years, you know, Rockin' to the Edge of the Night from Human Era was a song that was left over from 1987. That was a song that didn't make the first trickster album, should have, but it just didn't for some reason. Doesn't mean it's not a great song. <clears throat> and so... That's how it all came about, and uh, as soon as as soon as I had the group of songs together, especially you know picking up the pieces, shameless, I knew those were the you know going to be the go tos and the and the ones that you know of course Ted being the vocalist he was going to gravitate towards, but then there was deeper songs that 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 I wrote you know um, put me to shame, um, don't let me go, a little bit darker, a little bit heavier. Those are songs that kind of scared Ted a little bit. So those were even ones that I knew would be even better, you know, because I I, I wanted to do something. I didn't want to give everybody the obvious with this CD. I didn't want to give everybody you know okay it's going to sound like Trickster in Danger Danger boom there you go. I could have done that very easily, but I wanted to look for different things. So the band had its own identity. And I think that that's exactly what we captured with the CD. When you have these songs on the hard drive and stuff, and you give them to Tokyo Motor Fizz, is there a little bit of a, oh, do I keep this for Trickster? Because you are, you do have to make a new Trickster album at some point, right? Maybe. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, I mean, you know, listen, the, the output of material that I've done in the last, you know, five years since 2012, you know, I put out three, you know, three full length, you know, records that I've written, produced, engineered, mixed. And then, you know, P I finished PJ's solo record that we've been working on on and off for the last 20 years. And then, you know, all the other stuff. So, yeah, I'm a little, I'm a little um, studioed out right now. So I don't know about that. But no, I never do that because you know what, man, I'm, I'm not, I'm not afraid to write new songs and I still have a ton of other material. So there's never a worry. You know, I mean, this is this is what I do. And, you know, I, I think I've said it before in interviews. You know, if somebody put a gun to my head right now and said, dude, you got to write a new trickster record and it's going to be done tomorrow. You got you got to write 12 songs. I think I could do it, you know, and I think they would be I think they would be great. You know, it's just something and I'm not saying that to be conceited or whatever. It's just what I do. And, you know, luckily, you know, God has blessed me with the talent to be able to do that. Have you submitted songs to other artists over the years? Oh, yeah, of course I have. Okay. Uh, you know, of course I have. And I think if you, I'm not going to mention any names, but if you listen to the Tokyo Motor Fist, I'm sure you could pick out some songs that sound, that sound like they would be even better with another band and maybe even another band that I sometimes play with. But I'm not going to mention any names. Well, may I? Because, <laughs> because when I first heard the, um, the album, I sent you a text and I said, man, the album's great. And I said, man, there's a couple of songs where I hear some Def Leppard in them. Um, <laughs> and, yeah. and, you, and you do, right? Uh, so, now, this is where I, I might be ignorant. Have you written a song on, on Def Leppard? Because, I mean, I, no offense to Def Leppard, but I haven't sat and looked at their writing credits over the last couple of years. 
No, no, and you know it's it's one of the things that uh, you know. Believe me, and I think all the fans, you could listen directly to the record and hear some of those songs, and even on the last tricks to record, that would have been perfect for those guys. But they don't use they don't use outside writers anymore. You know, they're very protective of of that, and uh, you know. That's that's well, know, that's that, pretty that, much where that goes. Yeah, and 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 good for them. I mean, at, at this point of their career, I'm pretty sure Phil Collins and uh, Phil Collins and, <laughs> and uh, you know uh, Joe Elliott know how to write a song. Now, um, uh, 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 there's all kinds of great dishes going on in the background. Uh, did I call you during uh, cleanup time? Yeah, I got my my <laughs> my beautiful wife is here making breakfast for ah, uh, you know myself kids. and my daughter. Jade's running around. I told her, I said, "Daddy's got to do a very important interview, so you got to be quiet." <laughs> yeah, it's so. exactly what I do here when I do them. Um, so so since we mentioned Def Leppard, you came in f- for a few shows to uh, replace Vivian Campbell. Mm-hmm. Where are we in terms of that? Are you still following the the band around? Do they still have your your number on on speed dial? Is it? Of course, okay. of course. You know, I mean, you know that that's been, you know, and getting. I just want to get back to the CD, you know, for one second. You know, getting back to what I said about the influence of Def Leppard and why you hear songs. You know, for the last five years, it's going on five years now that I've been in the you know in the bullpen, so to speak, or in the in the uh, on the bench. Um, uh, it'd be hard for me not to be influenced by Def Leppard. First and foremost, they're one of my favorite bands, and you know, of course, everything they do, Pyromania and High and Dry and Hysteria are always the benchmark to what I've always, you know, even back in the Trickster days, it was always, what would Mutt Lang do? What would Def Leppard do? You know, does it sound as good? Is it influenced by? So that influence has been with me all my life. So you know, whether I wrote certain songs to be on a Def Leppard record or just to say that I was influenced by everything, you know, and especially over the last five years, you know, I've been living, pretty much living and breathing Def Leppard stuff in between everything else I do. So there is no way that that influence wouldn't be even more prevalent than it is, you know, on these last couple records that I've put out. Right, right, right. So, so how does the arrangement work? Do, do they fly you to every show, or do they tell you to stay within a certain radius, or do they let you know two weeks in advance, listen, we're going to need you? In one, like, is, there's got to be some kind of protocol, right? Yeah, and not so much. You know, it's, it's a very, uh, um, it's, it's a very um, how do I say it? I always have to be on my feet. <laughs> right and know that uh, know that I could get the call at any given time and you know there have been times when I've of course you know over the last couple of years I've missed trickster shows and uh, missed a lot of things because of you know getting a phone call and having to having to do this and those guys know that I'm always there for them and you know um, I think people by now know that you know those guys are you know they become like family now and you know we've become super close phil is like a brother to me and you know i've been friends with those guys close to 30 years now so um there's nothing i wouldn't do for them to be there and especially to help out when they need it and uh you know but uh yeah it's kind of it's kind of like you know they they know their manager calls me and you know says hey man you're going to be on a plane and we need you you know viv's got to get treatment or you know this and that and uh well, that's 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 it. But you know, just one of the most incredible experiences of my life, and yeah. you know, honored to be you know to to have 
to get picked to do it. You know, and that was, you know, like I said, you know, one of the reasons a lot of people, you know, don't know, and I think they do now, is, you know, I got the gig mostly because of my vocals, you know, and that was something Phil and I, you know, we did a thing years ago. We did this Fox uh, News thing, the Mike Huckabee show, and that was the first time Phil and I actually, like, jammed together, like, in public. We've played together for years, you know, at his house or, you know, backstage jamming and stuff, but we never really, and we always talked about working together, but it never worked out, so we did this thing, and, you know, uh, we heard, he heard the blend of the vocals, and that was the seed, so as soon as Viv got diagnosed in 2013, you know, Phil told the guys, you know, hey, man, I got the guy. You know, him and their old tour manager, Malvin, um, were like Steve Brown. He's the one. Boom. Done. And, uh, you know, it's funny because I, I saw other, you know, sort of, you know, what do we call it? The uh, the hired guns, you know, guys, the usual suspects that get the calls. And, you know, the big, uh, the big thing was, yeah, you know, so-and-so asked me to do it, but I don't sing. They asked me to do it, but I can't sing like you can. You know, so kids... And I, t- I tell this to all my guitar students and anybody, if you're a musician, sing. If you can't sing, learn how to sing because it could be the most, it's the di- difference between getting a gig and not getting a gig sometimes. So a lot of times, there's my little, quite frankly. There's my little lesson to everybody out there, and there's no charge for that. There's no charge, but that, but that actually is very, very true. Every time, you know, people sometimes come to me and say, hey, Mitch, we need a new drummer, we need a new this, do you have anybody you can recommend? And I say, yeah, yeah, I recommend this guy, this guy. And the, the next question is always, can they sing? Because they always need somebody to do the backing vocals or, or you know, a trade-off lead or something. It's, it's totally unbelievably important. Um, and I'll finish on Def Leppard with this. Yep. The first night that you actually were on stage and you see the guys next to you and you're playing mm-hmm. Let's Get Rocked and you're playing Photograph, just as a fan growing up in the time, you, you know, you obviously through the 80s you you heard the the songs i mean you know you didn't live under a rock obviously what was that like to be on stage and to look to your left and go oh christ <laughs> that's joel well, you know here, here's the better here's the better the better you know of course i mean mind blowing I, I it goes like this when i was a little kid you know i i wasn't I was into Def Leppard before anybody. I knew about Def Leppard when On Through the Night came out. And that was one of my biggest inspirations because I knew that those guys, how young they were. You know, Rick Allen was 16 years old, I believe, when when On Through the Night came out. So that was how it got presented to me. You know, some kid, we were listening to Back in Black, and he goes, this was 1980, I was 10 years old. And he goes, you ever hear of Def Leppard? I don't know. Because you've got to hear these guys. They're teenagers from England, and they sound like ACDC. And he played me the, the, the tape, the cassette tape, and I was blown away. Rock Brigade, that song, you know, changed my life, along with, you know, Greatest Van Halen, song Warren, ever. Kiss, Rock and Roll Over. Yeah. So, you know, um, getting back to it, yeah, when, when I ho- held those records, you know, On Through the Night, High and Dry, Pyromania especially, and I still have the vinyl. I think my, I have my wife's vinyl of it. Um, when I was a little kid, did I ever ever think that I would be in Def Leppard and playing on stage with them? No, when I was a little kid. But I learned, and I can, I can take this to heart now, that I've worked all my life to get to that point to play with Def Leppard. You know, and, and my, my abilities speak for themselves to be able to pull that off. So, yeah, I agree. But, 
so here's the so the, the better is that in 2014 I went on the road. I was you know I was on the West Coast for the beginning of the Kiss Def Leppard tour, you know, ghosting around, let's say, and um, you know, um, rehearsing and stuff like that. I was at a hotel and going to various gigs, and then um, in August I went on the road with the guys on the East Coast, and that was when I started the rehearsals with them, and I would do sound check. So <laughs> sound check Saratoga. New York. I saw that um, sound check. I was there. Oh, that you were there. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Right. Marco so Marco sh- Mendoza of the Dead Daisies had invited me out, and we came in like, like I don't know two or three in the afternoon, and and I do an interview with him, and in the interview you can hear hysteria being sound checked. Right. And so I, all right. So, so dude, I ha- there I you go. You. I have you. Yep. Great show. All right. So that was my first sound check, but it gets even better. So plug in the in ears and you know get going. I'm playing, got Viv's guitar, playing Hysteria. And all of a sudden, I look over my right shoulder, and there's Paul Stanley and Eric Singer watching me do sound check. So it's my first time playing live with the guys, with Def Leppard. And then I look over my shoulder, and, you know, one of my heroes, Paul Stanley, standing there with a big grin on his face. You know, he's a good friend. You know, we've toured, we toured with Kiss back on the Revenge Tour. So it was just complete insanity you know complete hysteria no pun intended for me i'm like i'm like you know are you you got to be kidding me i'm playing with def leppard and paul stanley's watching me do my first sound check so pretty cool that that's that's not bad see i have a story that's similar but you'll you'll enjoy this i grew up loving the scorpions right yeah and and last week in uh, ottawa uh i had to go pick up uli john roth and mm-hmm. uh, I picked him up at the hotel, and before we get to the venue, he says, I need to go shopping at Walmart, so I'm standing side-by-side side shopping with Wal- at Walmart with Uli John Roth. Come on, that, that's just as good, right? That's amazing. Right? You know, I mean, those are the, those are the <laughs> great stories, man. I have, I have numerous, you know, I mean, I could tell you, you know, the, the Eddie Van Halen stories, playing, <laughs> playing volleyball at his beach house in Malibu, you know, and we're sitting there and, you know, sitting at his, in his kitchen, at his Malibu beach house and Valerie Burtnell and Valerie makes us turkey chili. You know, me and Ed are sitting there drinking. I think we were drinking Beck's at the time. We're drinking Beck's beer. And like I'm sitting in, you know, I'm at, at this, you know, multi-million dollar beautiful beach house and like sitting in this kitchen. I'm like, I'm like pinching myself. I'm like, here I'm with Eddie Van Halen and Valerie Burtnell. He's making us turkey chili. <laughs> and, and speaking of Valerie Bertinelli, she's got an incredibly good cooking show that my wife and I watch sometimes. She makes the oh, best. Yeah. yeah, she makes the best recipes, and it's funny because she's always cooking, and there's always Wolfie there. <laughs> it's kind of it's, it's a great show. I love that show. Um, and by the way, the uh, the Uli Walmart story is actually true. It was just very very surreal. It's not Paul Stanley staring over my shoulder surreal, but it's 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 pretty good. Well, you know what, man? Everybody, everybody's human, and uh, I'll, I'll be the first to tell you, I'm a huge Walmart fan. You know, the only problem with me going to Walmart, it's, it's, never, it's never under 100 bucks. So I have to be careful when I go well, to Walmart. Yeah. But that, that's cool. Was, was Uli wearing his, was he wearing, like, his, all of his silk clothing? Oh, and you, all of you his, got it. The, whole, the, the feathers, yeah. the whole deal. and uh, The bell bottoms. You and, got it. Oh yeah! Awesome. That's good. Hey, hello. Hey, Mitch. Oh yeah. You have to take me to Walmart. I have to get. I have to get these special vitamins so I can play the twenty-seven fret guitar. Yeah. Well, it wasn't vitamins. It was a uh, pillow. Pillows for the bus. So. Oh, there. You, what do you buy? My perfect pillow. Yes, sir. 
Two, of course. Two wonderful pillows for the bus. And uh, no, but I, you know, listen, I love Uli. He, he's absolutely wonderful, a great guy. And man, it's just, it's just those weird moments. I'm like, how did I go from a fan with like Kiss posters and Scorpion posters on the wall to standing, you know, at this restaurant or at that restaurant? Or at, it, it's, it's, just, it's bizarre. Um, let's get off bizarre for a second. Get on to the real stuff. Trickster, the first album, of course. Years and years ago, 1990, May, in fact, yeah. so we're, we're getting to the anniversary. Uh, talk to me about that first album, because it, it comes out, it, it goes all the way to number 28 on the Billboard 200 chart, which back in 1990 actually meant something. You know, 28 back then is like number one with a silver bullet now. Mm-hmm. Um, what was that like, getting it together, getting the songs together, and then right away, boom, out of the box, you're the next big thing? Yeah, I mean, it was uh, incredible. I mean, you know, one of the most uh, spectacular experiences of my life and all of our lives. I mean, you know, I started Trickster when I was 12 years old, 1983, and, uh, you know, just with a complete blind passion and ambition to do this, you know, with the inspiration of, you know, Def Leppard, Van Halen, Bon Jovi, Motley Crue, you know, all the bands from back then, you know, I saw it and I, I believed and I knew we could do it. You know, I mean, you know, back, back then when I started, man, Pete, our singer, Pete Morin, he wasn't a singer, <clears throat> you know, he was just a good looking dude. And I told him, I said, dude, you're going to be the singer on my band. He goes, all right. You know, we had we had one common thing that we were, you know, he loved Van Halen and so did I. And but that, you know, and I, I'm sure you've heard this before, that blind ambition and passion is is more important than anything. The drive, you know, I mean, a lot of bands, you know, the biggest bands in the world, they're really not they're not, you know, Olympic athletes at their instruments. You know, there there's a reason, you know, and that, that more than anything and like any to become successful, it's your passion. So putting it all together we just trickster you know we started out as kids playing cover songs and then 1985 we transitioned into you know me writing original stuff and really and good stuff and then by 87 we had met our managers at the time uh ken mako this guy and they our other manager ken and joel these guys they they were good friends of peter mensch from q prime management and they came to me and said, hey, man, Peter Mensch is going to help us. We want to manage you. We want a band like you. We, we, we love what Trickster does. And we signed on, and then immediately things started you know, heating up, of course. And Peter Mensch was the guy who took our demo tape around, all the record companies, said these guys are going to open for Def Leppard. And that's where the Def Leppard connection came in. That's when I met you know, Phil and the guys on the Hysteria Tour. And uh, you know, that friendship, of course, is still to this day. And... Uh, so Trickster, we just, you know, started rolling, you know, we became in, in the North Jersey, New York, Staten Island, you know, tri-state area, we became one of the big bands. And this was right, you know, the height of Bon Jovi, Skid Row had just got signed. So, of course, it was almost like a mini Sunset Strip where all the A&R guys were, where, who's, who's going to be the next Bon Jovi? Who's going to be the next Skid Row? And it turned out to be us. And um, so we... We started showcasing for all the labels, and we finally signed with uh, Mechanic MCA Records, which was kind of, you know, not the obvious choice, but I saw something in this guy, Steve Sinclair, that was very unique, and, and he had a different sort of outlook than a lot of the other 
A&R guys, whether it be Geffen Records or Polygram, you know, a lot of those guys that were very cookie cutter, you know, it was like, you know, and you saw this with all the bands back then. We get the, we get the makeup artist, we get the clothes designer, we, we get the video, same video director, and there it is. Um, that was not the case with us, and, and, you know, our management had a very different vision of how we're going to do things and how they saw us. And, and we did. We didn't want Trickster. We definitely, um, and, and to this day, I think people can see that we were different than a lot of the bands from back then. You know, we had our own identity. You know, we were the band wearing, and while everybody was wearing leather and spandex and glitter and stuff, we were jeans, T-shirts, you know, flannel, and we were, you know, it was a totally different thing. And uh, so that there you go. And then, so we got our deal, and then... Uh, September of 89, they shipped us out to California to record the first record with our producer, Bill Ray, another different choice for producer, you know, somebody who wasn't the, you know, wasn't the Bow Hill, wasn't the Mutt Lang, wasn't, you know, who Bruce Fairburn, you know, wasn't Michael Wagner. It was a, di- a different choice. And, uh, you know, all these little things are what make, made Trickster unique in the sense. And so we uh, went out to California to record the first record. And, you know, just didn't, what an experience, you know, first time ever out there and just, you know, living, living life, you know, going out to the, you know, yeah. going out to the bars. You know, I tell the story, one of the greatest de- nights of our lives, we, we were at this club Bordello, which was the big Thursday night hang, which was like, you know, we're standing at the door and like Slash and Duff walk by and, you know, every rock star under the sun. I'll never forget this, standing at the bar and, you know, we look over and my drummer goes to me, dude, David Lee Roth just walked in. And, you know, that guy at the time, you know, that guy was our god pretty much. You know, it was like, you know, Eddie Van Halen was before I ever met Eddie and became friends with him. So, but Dave walked in, he was all decked in leather, riding his Harley, and it was just incredible. And we all went up to him, and he was so nice to us, and it was just incredible. And then we went on to start recording, you know, the first record. We worked at all these great studios. We rehearsed and recorded at Sound City, the famous studio in Van Nuys and uh you know I, I remember vividly walking in and seeing the Dio Holy Diver platinum album on the wall and Y&T was recording in the studio next to us and the Scorpions were ne- in the next building recording with uh, Keith Olsen so it was just you know for an 18 year old kid you know, who'd never been to California and all of us for that matter, you know, just being out there and being surrounded by it. We, uh, we, we, we sucked it all in and, and loved it and enjoyed every moment. It was a lot of hard work, but you know, we got to work at all these great studios, you know, which was really cool. So, so let me ask you about this. We, we mentioned Def Leppard. They are on tour with Poison this year and your you first bet. arena shows was opening for Poison. Now, of course, 1990 at the height of, you know, something to believe in and talk dirty to me and all these great massive songs. How was that to, you know, you're not opening for, for Schmo and his friends. You're opening for Poison, one of the hottest bands at that time. What, what was that like for you to get that gig? Well, that was, you know, that was the dream. <clears throat> you know, back when we started Trickster, our goal was never, it was never about you know, hit songs. It was never about number one videos. It was all we ever wanted to do was to play the Meadowlands Arena, which was our hometown arena. 
in New Jersey where we saw all the bands, you know, all everybody under the sun. So that was our goal. So <clears throat> the first Tricks record comes out in May of 1990. We do, you know, regional touring. We did club touring. We opened up for Striper. That was our first tour on the road in September of 90. And then we went out with Don Dawkins solo. And then that's when, you know, Give It To Me Good came out. <clears throat> number one video and our lives changed but the biggest moment for us was playing our first arena show and that was muskegon michigan with poison with slaughter sold out ten thousand people and you know first time playing arena you know being an opening band a lot can go wrong you know you don't get real sound check you don't get this you don't get that luckily we had been practicing and honing our skills all of our lives to get to that moment. And we went out there and crushed it. You know, it was like perfect. It was, you know, one of those surreal moments where, you know, everything that could have went wrong, nothing happened. And we just put on a flawless show. And that was our introduction to arenas, you know. <clears throat> and then right after that, we, we did a week with Poison and Slaughter. And then we went right out on the road for five months with the Scorpions. And that was the real, you know, learning about playing arenas. And we learned so much from the Scorpions, you know, not only about playing, but how to be a touring band. And, you know, as you know, those guys, you know, they pretty much wrote the book. They really did. And as a, as a fan and reporter, I've noticed that European bands and American bands approach touring a little differently. Did, did you catch any of that just in the way it's sort of... Especially back in the day, American bands seemed to be party, 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 and European bands seemed to be, we've got a job to do, and it's, it's very regimented. And Did you notice any of that stuff, or is it just a, a tour? You a know, tour? I mean, <clears throat> a little bit. Right. You know, I mean, I think that, you know, the Scorpions, I mean, they, they were, they're a machine. You know how they work, and their show is very precise, and there's not much... Uh, there's not much spontaneity in a lot of arena shows, you know, and I learned this later on, you know, when, you know, when I was a kid seeing Van Halen, you know, and, and David Lee Roth, you know, his raps, like, oh, my God, he made that up on the spot. No, he didn't. You know, and Dave still to this day, he says the same exact thing at every show that he, you know, that he does for the tour. He's the same rap, and he did it back in the 80s. We just didn't know about it because we didn't have, you know, YouTube. But so with that being said, yeah, Scorpions very much so, very regimented, but those guys had a good time, but they were a little bit different. I mean, certainly it was not, it was not like being on tour with Motley Crue on the Theater of Pain tour or the Girls, Girls, Girls tour, you know, Scorpions were very, very, you know, of course, yeah, they have a job to do and stuff, but, and even the Poison guys, you know, those guys were, you know, when we were out with them, you know, we would have dinner with them every night. It, was, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, like a lot of people think, you know, everybody was very professional, but yeah, you know, we'd let loose a, a little bit and everybody would have some cocktails and whatever else they were doing, you know, but, yeah. uh, let, let's get over to, sorry, let's get over to the, uh, the second album here. Mm -hmm. Great album, uh, road of a thousand dreams, which you, you, you covered or redid as a bonus track on human era. Um, just great. Uh, album didn't chart as high, and it was sort of the start of the scene for everybody, not just Trickster, sorry, to, to, to wane. Looking back on that album, are you disappointed it, it didn't do better? Are you happy that it did as well as it did? Just sort of what are some of that? Because that was that weird, funky, 92, 93, everything's falling apart kind of for everybody era. What yeah. was it like for you? Well, I mean, uh, you know, it sucked, of course. You know, while we were doing it, it was some of the best times we ever had because... 
<clears throat> you know, after 13 months of touring, you know, through 91, you know, we, we every dream we ever had came true a million times over. We were on top of the world and, you know, we had come back um, October of 1991 and, you know, I had pretty much written the whole record on tour. You know, we PJ and I would uh, do the demos. I had a mobile recording studio, so I did all the demos for the record, you know, on the road. On, on tour and came back and, you know, played the stuff with our managers and record company. Everybody was like, this is amazing. And from there, uh, right in the beginning of 1992, we, we renegotiated our deal with MCA, signed a million-dollar deal, and it, we were off to the races without, reala- without realizing our scene was completely getting wiped out. You know, Nirvana had came out <clears throat> at the end of 91 and was changing everything, but as a lot of guys might tell you, when you're in a band and you're in that bubble, you know, that success bubble, and you're only looking, you have your managers and the record company, they're all pulling for you. We didn't know what was really going on around us, that the whole scene was literally going to be wiped out within a matter of months, and it was. But we had, you know, we had this great record, and we were, you know, we hired uh, Jim Jimbo Barton, uh, you know, from Rush and Queens, Queens right, to do yep. our record, and we had this huge budget. And man, you know, uh, the one thing I can say is about the first and second record, and I th- and I thank, uh, I'm so thankful that we got to work in all the great recording studios in New York and LA and Pennsylvania and be able to do that big budget old school record. You know, a lot of the first record, the first record was recorded on analog tape bands of today. will never get that opportunity. So just getting back to that, we were so thankful, but yeah, man here, you know, that was my role as a co-producer and, you know, it was just incredible. You know, I mean, the record still to this day stands up and, you know, I'd be lying if I said, you know, I'm disappointed that it didn't. I thought it was going to be our record company was like, oh man, we should do two, three million on this. You know, I mean, we, we were all psyched up and it all changed right when we went out on tour on, with Kiss. We did this great video for Road of a Thousand Dreams. I went out on tour in October of 1992, and I'll never forget it. We were asking, you know, PJ and I were asking our manager, when's our video going to get added to MTV? Oh, next week. When's our video? Kiss tour starts. Guys, I got bad news. MTV's not adding your video. Right there and then, we were like, oh, man, this is going to be rough. And it sure was. But we still made the best of it. Yeah, well, you know, speaking of the Kiss tour, because I saw them October 5th, 92 at the Montreal Forum. I actually don't remember who opened. Were you on that show? Of course we were. It was us and Faster Pussycat. Wow. I, I ha- well, first of all, I brought my cousins from Denmark, so I was sort of distracted, I guess. But, but there you go. So I, I saw you way back when it was, when it was uh, exciting and new. And, and Wow, there you go. Um, yep. The KISS tour, just quickly talk about that KISS tour. The, the Revenge tour, you know, attendance-wise, wasn't one of their best tours. Performance-wise, playing-wise, and song-list-wise, um, song or set-list-wise is what I'm trying to say, absolutely phenomenal. That tour, to me, is their best tour ever. Uh, what was it like for you, and just, again, what do you learn from, from road dogs like KISS? There's obviously some kind of lesson that goes, like, dude, you've got to remember, when you're on the road, 
do this. Yeah, I mean, you know, we we had a lot of fun with those guys. You know, they were they were great and very nice to us. Um, Gene would come in our dressing room every, you know, pretty much every night because we had a lot of junk food, and I think everybody knows that Gene loves sweets. You know, let me let me go into Trickster's dressing room. I want to see if they have cookies and candy. And he would actually bring his son. Nick Nick was probably three years old at the time. From, you know, do the math right. He would bring Nick in the dressing room. Trickster has the best sweets because we would have candy and you know stuff like that. And he would always come in and um, you know raid our dressing room because Paul was very health conscious, so there's no junk food in in, in Kiss's dressing in the room. Kiss but, the, so you you would yeah, go and buy ding dongs right. and stuff, right? <laughs> yeah, we had all that stuff. I mean, dude, we were we were kids. We were rocking, man. We wanted we wanted you know sugar and and uh, Captain Crunch cereal, but. Yeah, Kiss was amazing on that tour. I loved it. The set list was great. And, you know, just to get to watch them every night. But, yeah, we learned a lot from them. You know, Gene would always come in, you know, give us his two cents. And he would always say, after this tour, you need to hire Eric Singer as your drummer. And I get 10%. You need to get rid of your drummer and get Eric in the band because he's short like you guys. Like, it was always, you know, Gene's a frustrated comedian like, like most rock stars and stuff like that. We all, you know, have our moments where we like to think that we're, uh, you know, Eddie Murphy or, you know, just some great uh, Rodney Dangerfield. But so Gene would always, you know, but we, like I said, it was surreal because the kiss was for me and for all of us, that was the reason why we started. So to get that, you know, to be able to tour with them and, you know, and you get to see that, you know, Gene is, and you've seen this scene, he's a real person and he's a great, fun guy. You know, we used to go out and, you know, go to movies and, you know, go do things. I'll never forget one of the greatest was we had a day off in West Palm Beach or no, it was Daytona Beach. And it was the first time I ever saw Gene Simmons in shorts, like a bathing suit. He was on the beach. We all rented, we rented like quads on the beach. And Gene was out there with his baseball hat on, a golf shirt and these red shorts. And I think we have video of it somewhere, but it was pretty, you know, pretty surreal. There's the demon, you know, standing on Daytona Beach you know, trying to figure out if he's going to sit on a quad and ride around the beach. I uh, I, I have a, a friend that was in the studio next to Gene when they did Revenge, and he sent me this picture of Gene in a white sweatshirt with the cap and the shorts. I, I will send it to you later. It is absolutely <laughs> the greatest picture ever because um, you don't yeah. see Gene like that, and it's like Gene Simmons. And not only are they shorts – they are short shorts. I mean, he, he probably yep. had to. He 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 must have bikini waxed because it, <laughs> they were gloriously short. Um, anyway, uh, Tokyo Motor Fist. It is by far, or it is definitely going to be on my top ten, even top five albums of 2017. If you are a fan of melodic rock and hard rock, uh, this one's done right. I mean, it's just done right. There's there's no other ways to describe it. It is a good hard solid album so so good on you and hopefully um since we we mentioned touring hopefully we'll see a few shows somewhere somehow yeah i mean you know what people have been asking and you know we we we, we definitely want to do it and we, we we had some opportunities we thought we were going to get added to some festivals you know the frontiers festival that was you know last year that was supposed to be kind of the launch of the record and for the band and some reason it didn't work out, but we, you know, we've, the band, we've talked about the set we're going to do. We're going to do like half Tokyo motor fist. And then the rest is going to be, you know, danger, danger, trickster, rainbow, um, Ted Nugent, all the bands that we've ever been in, you know, celebrating the fact, you know, you know, Chuck was in rainbow and was in, he's in Billy Joel's drummer. You never know. He might do a Billy Joel song. Great Smith, you know, 
Yeah, we we know that you're you're of course trickster, and we know Ted. So so let's just mention it. Greg Smith uh, was, and of course, is in Tokyo Motor Fist. He was with Ted Nugent, Rainbow, Alice Cooper, and Chuck Berge was Rainbow, Blue Oyster Cult, and Joe Lynn Turner, who of course. Uh, sang in, in Rainbow, right? So, Of course, yeah. So there, and, so there, you know, a lot of people also don't know that Chuck played on half of the first Bon Jovi record. That's the, the great drumming of Chuck Berge. Oh, oh, do, I, do I know that? I know about, of course, um, Yui McDonald yeah. playing on that album. But, uh, oh, so there you go. So Chuck was in, on the first Bon Jovi record. That's kind of cool. That's, a, that's an interview right there to get the, the, the nitty-gritty. But the one thing you learn about the Bon Jovi clan is that it's very hermetically sealed there's no stories that come out unfortunately but that's oh uh, I, I got quite a few but we'll save that for another day for another time. day yeah <laughs> there you go thank you steve i will go uh send you that picture of gene just for for your own archives and uh there you go tokyo Motor i, I love it man mitch thank you so much and to everybody out there feel the fist keep rocking and rolling buy cds Buy digital downloads, support the music, keep rocking. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's absolutely true, and uh, there you go. Thank you, sir. Have a good one, and hopefully we'll catch you on the road soon. You got it, brother. Thanks so much, Mitch. Bye-bye now. And there you have it, folks. Uh, Steve Brown of Trickster and, of course, Tokyo Motor Fist. And as Steve says, uh, support the music. Uh, you know, Check out our first guest, John Karabi's uh, The New Dead Daisies, Live and Louder, great live album. And uh, Steve's Tokyo Motor Fist with Ted Poley of Danger Danger. And of course, while you're checking stuff out, find me on Twitter at Mitch Lafon, M I T C H L A F O N, at Mitch underscore Lafon on Instagram and uh, Google. Just Google the Mitch Lafon. It's all over the place. Um, there you go. Um, you know, I could go on forever, but I can't and I won't. And so, good night. And goodbye, and uh, here you go. The end. Download new episodes of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn every Monday at Podcast One and on the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe at iTunes. And don't forget to rate, review, and share. This is Jay Moore. I have a new sports podcast every day. More sports. Hashtag more sports. You don't even have to know anything about sports to love it. All you got to know is I get down. I tell it like it is. I curse. I know. That's weird. And I guarantee you will love it. Podcast One, Podcast One app. Please hit subscribe. President Trump denies it. I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. President Trump denies on Twitter using vulgar language when questioning why the U.S. would accept more immigrants from Haiti and African nations. 17 dead, 43 missing in Southern California after Tuesday's heavy rain and devastating mudslides. Santa Barbara County Sheriff Bill Brown is asking people to evacuate some areas so search and rescue crews can do their jobs. It is seriously impacting the ability of search and rescue, public works, other first responders and repair crews to clear roadways and to engage in search and rescue repair and damage assessment operations. Missouri Governor and former Navy SEAL Eric Greitens is now under investigation after acknowledging an extramarital affair but denying anything more, including accusations that he tried to blackmail the woman into keeping quiet. I'm Rita Foley.